Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Kristen Allen, and I am a medical student at Queen's University and part of the Cold Steel team. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Hugh McDonald, a colorectal surgeon at Kingston General Hospital. Amir and Chad discuss one of the real challenges that face any practicing surgeon. How does a surgeon evolve their practice as they advance in their career? Dr. McDonald talks about how he decided to incorporate robotic surgery as a well-established and senior surgeon. Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cold Steel Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have uh, a friend and a colleague uh, join us on the show. So really, thank you again for, for joining us early in the morning. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here and and thank you for inviting me to, uh, to speak uh, today. I was born in saint Laurent, Quebec. I was the youngest of four children had nobody in the health industry in my family. My dad had his own business um, in Montreal, and that's uh, he had that for life. Uh, it was good for me because it allowed me summer employment and allowed me to fund my education. Uh, our family didn't have much wealth. Uh, so that was serendipity in a way, I guess. Uh, and I think that's been a theme throughout my life to some degree. I came to Kingston in 1976. Uh, and a big motivator, I'd never been to Kingston before, even though it's only two and a half, three hours from Montreal, big motivator at that time was the FLQ crisis in Montreal. And uh, uh, you're probably too young uh, to remember that, but um, it was very unsettling, uh, a time in Montreal where we had troops wandering the streets and tanks uh, rolling down our, our downtown core. And um, it was a it was a civil unrest between French and English. And driven by a very radical group. So um, I came to Kingston because I wanted out of Quebec at that time. And uh, to be honest, I've never really strayed very far from Kingston. I fell in love with Kingston the moment I came here, uh, being on the lake, uh, close to Ottawa, close to Toronto, uh, close to Montreal, where my family was. So um, I studied life sciences here um, and then applied to medicine, uh, was accepted uh, and did my degree in medicine here in Kingston graduated in 1984. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I finished medicine. And in fact, I, um, I did a year of uh, straight uh, medicine, internship in medicine. At that time, we had various types of internships. And uh, I did a year in internal medicine. Uh, I selected disciplines that were uh, had intervention associated with them. Gastroenterology was one. Uh, I actually did a rotation on neurosurgery. Um, and I decided at that time that uh, internal medicine was not for me, and uh, I did not sign on for the second year. And I, when I did that, I had no off-ramp. I had no, no other place to go, except uh, the safety valve at that time was that having completed an MD degree, I had a general license, believe it or not. I could just hang up a shingle on a, on a, a small storefront and start my family practice uh, if, if I chose. But that wasn't really what I chose. Um, I started exploring getting into uh, surgery. I was known here in Kingston by the head of the department and the head of the division, and they were very supportive to try and get me a spot. It, it wasn't smooth. 
Um, but eventually I did get a spot in surgery program here uh, in Queens. I wouldn't have been really competitive, I don't think, with that pathway in, in other places. But um, I was very pleased to secure uh, an intern or a residency spot in general surgery here in Kingston. I completed that in 1989. Um, and uh, I came back on staff in 1992. So uh, that's that's the sort of short-winded, I guess, uh, part of my journey, but a little bit long-winded, I'm sure, for those who are listening. That's a neat pathway. Uh, we're, we're curious, what drew you to the subspecialty of colorectal surgery and what did that um, sort of pathway and navigation look like? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. You, you know, uh, I think for those that are, are completing their training, that they probably don't appreciate that. Uh, so I've been on staff here now for 31 years of practice. And at the time I was training, you know, our emergency departments were staffed by non-fellowship trained emergency room physicians. And it wasn't uncommon that surgeons as well were not fellowship trained. Um, they all had their areas of interests and, and niches, but and they may have had some extra training in certain areas, but very few were fellowship trained. Um, I think during my training program, uh, there was one fellowship trained surgeon in esophageal surgery, surgery but uh, he, he would have graduated from a training program that was not officially recognized. So that was not uncommon. Uh, how did I choose colorectal surgery? Uh, I, I liked it. Um, you know, of all of the things I did in my uh, uh, training program, uh, I, I indeed enjoyed colorectal surgery. But the, but the, the main reason I chose it was I was approached uh, and I was told if I trained in a fellowship program in colorectal surgery, uh, they would hire me back in Kingston. Um, my wife had a job as a teacher. Um, we, uh, at that time, had one child, and that, uh, to me, was very attractive. Um, uh, so I applied to um, the Toronto U of T uh, fellowship program. And at that time, your ticket to a position was obviously, you know, good references, but they really wanted to train surgeons that were going to go back to an academic center. And if you had some uh, support for that uh, in your application, um, then that was really very attractive to them at the time. Um, that's a practice that, you know, it's pretty hard to put in place today for many, many reasons, obviously. And uh, EDI is, 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 is a solid reason why that approach is really not an opportunity for uh, for young uh, trainees today, but but that's that's um, that's how I ended up really in colorectal surgery. I trained with uh, Zane Cohen and Robin McLeod. Um, I did a million pelvic pouches. It was it was great training. Robin and Zane uh, were such meticulous surgeons. Uh, I don't think they knew it at the time, um, but their dissection in the pelvis uh, for proctectomies prior to creating the pouch. Uh, was identical to a TME approach. And they didn't do many, if any, uh, rectal cancer surgeries. Uh, um, Hartley Stern was doing most of those at the Sinai at the time. But their technique was so meticulous. Um, and I learned uh, so much from, from both of them that um, when I came back to Kingston, uh, that was my approach to any pathology in the pelvis, um, which um, Obviously, it was open uh, surgery, but it was uh, it was a TME approach, which uh, I think served myself and served my patients very well. So I came back on staff here in 1992. And uh, as I said, I'm in my 31st year of practice uh, here in Kingston. Yeah, the, the, the training of Zane Cole and Robin McLeod is, of course, 
legendary in the Kulak community here in Canada. So, and and another time I'll have to pick your brain and about your experience in England and all that kind of stuff. But what we really wanted to talk to you today about Hugh was something that I think you know you've demonstrated in your career, and, and certainly there's there's other folks out there in Canada who have done this. But uh, you know, as of thankfully gotten to know you, I, I think it's pretty evident in your career and your pathway, which is this idea of picking up new skills uh, while you're already an attending surgeon. So not as in residency or in formal training per se, but while uh, working as uh, as an attending surgeon. So, uh, you know, at first, first, I think it's, it's important to talk about incorporating laparoscopy, because as you said, that wasn't something that you were doing while you were a fellow in Toronto. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, kind of when laparoscopy entered your practice and what was the impetus for embracing laparoscopy and colorectal surgery and, and how did that really kind of go down? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, th- I think ongoing learning in your surgical practice is uh, something that I think everyone needs to think about. And it's not necessarily a simple pathway. To frame this, I think it's important to say that when I finished my general surgery training residency program in 1989, uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy was just starting. And we had a surgeon here, Ron Pace, uh, who primarily did hepatobiliary surgery. And he did the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy here at Queen's. It was the, the equipment at that time was very crude. I remember watching. Uh, I wasn't actually part of the team that was doing it, but it, it, that was my first exposure. I did two years of research after that and then entered my fellowship in Toronto. When I entered my fellowship in Toronto, uh, there was a surgeon there, Steve Strasberg, and um, uh, he was a patibulary surgeon. I'm sure you know the name. Um, he's famous for a number of things, including what's now, I think, standard of care for lap coles, the, the critical view. Um, he just retired in 2021. He was down in St. Louis after 50 years uh, practicing as a surgeon. So amazing, amazing uh, man. He was carrying out courses at that time uh, in the hospital at Mount Sinai for community surgeons to learn laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And I think it was really an observational course. I don't know for sure, but what I would do between my cases with Zane and Robin is I'd wander into his room uh, and I'd watch because I knew when I came back to Kingston on staff in July of 20, uh, 1992, I'd be expected to do lap coles when I'm on call. And, and even at that time, practices were not fully differentiated. So I wouldn't be doing exclusively colorectal. So I'd have to ha- have that skill. So I, I watched when I started back here in July of 1992, the division chair said, well, I'll scrub in with you for your first lap coley. And that was it. I was on my own. Uh, so very different world at that time. And it, it was frightening, I can tell you that, um, because I, I wasn't really trained. And and to be honest, there, there probably wasn't any, there were very few people out there who had enough skill set and experience with it to actually then train the newbies, uh, such as myself. So it was, a, it was a wild frontier, and everybody was trying to pick up this skill as quickly as possible. And, and of course, that, that's a whole different chapter in the history of surgery in Canada and, and North America with regards to lap coles. So I, I think, you know, that that sort of took up a, a lot of my energy in terms of learning new skills. There really wasn't much going on at that time in terms of laparoscopic uh, colorectal surgery. 
And a few years went by before we were starting to see reports of, of those uh, trying laparoscopic techniques for colorectal surgery. I was at, in, here in Kingston, and we had two inpatient hospitals just a few blocks from each other. I was the only one doing colorectal surgery at Hotel Du at that time. So I didn't even have a colleague uh, to, you know, to work with me. One of my, I think, very first laparoscopic colorectal cases was a reversal of a Hartman procedure. And it was motivated by uh, one of our trainees, Magdi Makar. Magdi uh, trained in Egypt and was brought to Canada on a special offer that if he retrained at a, at a uh, training program here in Canada, that he would be employed up in Moose Factory for five years. And so that's why he was here. He was a great guy. Unfortunately, he's since passed. But he was extremely motivated to endorse laparoscopic minimally invasive uh, surgery. And uh, so th that was the very first case I did. Eventually, we consolidated our inpatient services to one hospital. So I now had a colleague who could, you know, be there to assist me, but he was an older surgeon and he was not interested in uh, in laparoscopic colorectal surgery. There was also around this time a lot of uh, hype about port site recurrence for colorectal cancer, as we know that turned out to be false. But at that time, that was the thing that was, I, I think, on everyone's mind. Should we even be doing this or trying this for colorectal cancer? Or should we only be doing it for benign disease? Shortly after that, uh, Paul Beliveau from Montreal joined here at, at, King, at Kingston at Queens. And the two of us got along very, very well. And, and Paul um, had a lot of energy and he had a lot of motivation to continue to learn. And I think uh, the two of us together then started into the foray of, of laparoscopic colorectal surgery. He was a little more adventurous than, than myself. I, I really was very careful about picking my cases. Uh, I'd have to say intuitively I'm risk adverse. I'm energized to learn new technology and new techniques, and I'm energized by what I see in terms of patient outcomes. So we we were very, I was very selective. We eventually saw the results of the color trial that said that, you know, that laparoscopic colorectal surgery was, was safe for, for colon cancer and that uh, in a non-inferiority, you know, study, it, it was it was appropriate to be offering this. Uh, we didn't know that for rectal cancer at that time. Uh, so for rectal cancer, I, I confine my cases really to still very benign things. Believe it or not, um, we didn't have invasive uh, gastroenterologists who could do endoscopic submucosal excision. So it wasn't unheard of that we would be doing an anterior resection for a large benign polyp of the mid-rectum, uh, for example, one that we felt we couldn't remove colonoscopic. So those were the cases that um, that I was employing laparoscopic techniques. I would say it was slow, it was methodical in 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 how I approached it. Paul and I would would assist and help each other, but neither of us received any formal training in laparoscopic uh, colorectal surgery. And uh, it was, you know, in those early days that there wasn't a lot of opportunity and, and venues uh, to to do that. Uh, so we we had to be just, uh, I think, very selective, very cautious. Uh, we had a low, um, you know, expectation that that we would be able to complete it minimally invasive, and and we would convert to open, you know, in the safety of the patients uh, very quickly. So you know, um, John Hine, who's uh, one of the colorectal surgeons in Calgary, would talk about the fact that, you know, they would often start with 
Crohn's disease or diverticular disease, which, in, you know, in retrospect, those are actually some of the harder cases to do mm -hmm. uh, laparoscopically. How would you, how did you sort of initially pick patients or cases for laparoscopy? And how would you sort of like um, start the case? Would you sort of see how far you could go laparoscopically and convert or because, you know, one one thing we know about you is that you're, as you said, a very methodical kind of uh, person. And uh, I'm sure you had a rationale and a, and a thought process in terms of how you actually would would uh, kind of uh, advance the case or continue with the case. Yeah. So I, I think my selection criteria were pretty rigid back then. Obviously, no previous abdominal surgery. Uh, you know, the, the thought that you might have adhesions that you'd have to deal with laparoscopic uh, were, were just not on you know, our, our agenda. Um, so uh, that that would rule out a number of patients, as you know. The BMI was was a was a real decider for me. Uh, I had no appetite at that time to uh, to to attempt early laparoscopic cases on on those with high BMI. And then I looked for uh, what I thought was <clears throat> benign pathology. Uh, as I said, we did do a number of cases back then that benign polyps, but they couldn't be removed endoscopically. So we'd be doing a right hemicolectomy for that or an anterior resection um, in those settings or what looked like very early cancers. And so those were the cases I chose, primarily right-sided pathologies. So laparoscopic right hemicolectomy were, the, I think, the, primarily the first cases that I would do. And our approach or my approach was, was mimicking what I did open. So I knew the anatomy from a lateral to medial perspective, and uh, essentially I duplicated what I did open using laparoscopic techniques, uh, which we now know probably is is not the easiest thing to do um, once once that colon is very mobile, dealing with vascular pedicles and things becomes very challenging. So it, it took a while before. I switched uh, from lateral to medial to medial to lateral, uh, but once I did, immediately, you know, saw the advantage of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say it was it was a very select number of patients that uh, I was offering laparoscopic approaches to, and uh, they were uh, they, they they were picked for those reasons that that I outlined. You know, Dr. Ball and I have been really interested in exploring on the podcast how people pick up techniques, how they incorporate into their practice, and also kind of the ethics of it. So, you know, back then when you were con consenting patients for surgery, did you, what, what did you sort of tell people in terms of when, especially early on for a laparoscopy, you know, were you telling people, well, you know, this is, we're going to try this, but, but we'll see how it goes kind of thing. And this is my series or how, this is how many I've done. And then the second part of that is, you know, you mentioned that you switched from a lateral to medial and to a medial to lateral. How did you incorporate those incremental changes into your uh, practice? Like, was were these things that you picked up at a conference? Uh, were these things that, you know, other people started doing and then you saw that? How did that go about? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would have to say that the ethics of innovation in surgery was, was probably not uh, at the forefront uh, of a lot of the decisions that surgeons were making uh, back then. If you think about lap coli and how that came to be, you know, I, I don't think there was a lot of thought and discussion about how do we approach this from a, an ethical point of view and what do we tell patients about our own experience, our own competency in doing this. Uh, patients were looking for it. 
they, you know, the, the media had picked up on this, that rather than staying five days in hospital, you'd go home the next day or even the same day. And that was attractive to patients. So, so I think at that time, the public, when they heard the word laparoscopy, just thought of good things. Uh, that wow, th this is this is so beneficial to me if I can, you know, avoid a big incision. Uh, and, and you know that our patients are generally very, very trusting. So we, we probably didn't do a very good job in in conveying to patients our level of experience, and that this was a, a learning curve for for myself, the surgeon. We we didn't probably disclose as much as as we should have. You know, I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but it wasn't really, I, I would say it wasn't because we were hiding it. It's just that we weren't really educated sufficiently to to understand the proper approach to that um, for patients. Uh, this type of innovation in surgery was was happening fast. And there wasn't really a history of that for many years before this, you know, and how surgery evolved. It was really happening very fast. And I think everybody was was doing their best to to keep up with it, but but probably not doing the best job. And as you know, we had some bad outcomes in the early days of lap coles, um, and I'm sure we we possibly had some bad outcomes in laparoscopic colorectal surgery. That that doesn't ring true to me. I I don't remember having you know disasters that I felt oh gee that that should never have happened. I, I don't remember that, and I think it was because I was uh, highly selecting the patients. And I had a low, you know, threshold to convert to an open procedure, which I felt I was very competent and experienced in doing. So I think I, I was able to keep the patient safe. But there wasn't there wasn't a lengthy discussion in terms of you know the the appropriate ethical approach to uh, talking to a patient where you're you're doing new uh, surgical techniques and you, and you're learning yourself. Um, YouTube wasn't a thing back then. So how did we learn, um, you know, to switch? How did I learn to switch from a lateral to medial to medial? It, it was, there were some uh, videos that would have been shown at what's now known as the CSF, uh, Canadian Surgical Forum. And I remember, you know, a couple of consecutive years specifically searching out those sessions where I could see videos and, uh, and then try and bring those techniques back. I have to say, if you know, if, if I had to do this again uh, for uh, picking up laparoscopic uh, techniques in colorectal surgery, I would have done it differently. But I'm very proud of 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 how I've approached this more recently, and and maybe you know I I can speak to you about the differences um, uh, in the latter part of my career in terms of how I approached innovation and changes in surgical practice versus those those first few years. In the first few years, it was um, it was really the wild west a little bit. And I and I don't think I'm unique in that experience, but I but I saw value uh, in 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 change. I saw value in minimally invasive approaches. Um, it's very rewarding to you know to see patients uh, have an expedited uh, post-operative recovery, and uh, I think that that was the main motivator for me is is to continue to do this because at the time, you know, I was picking up these skills. You know, only a small percentage of of cases were being done laparoscopically for in the colorectal domain. That makes so much sense. You know, le leading into your your discussion then of the evolution of of innovation and introduction of new technology, you clearly moved very deeply into the robotic scene and the robotic skill set. How did you view that technology initially? What drew you into it, and how did you how did you integrate your practice into that really quite different skill set in many ways to laparoscopy? Yeah, so so thanks for asking that. So I, I think at the time I, I had a new colleague, so Dr. Patel, 
uh, Sunil Patel, who uh, I'm sure you know, he came uh, and the two of us were the two colorectal surgeons here at Kingston at the time. We, we were both doing, I'd say, advanced laparoscopic colorectal surgery, but our conversion rate, especially for pelvic surgery, was, was pretty high. And so Dr. Patel was, was eager to adopt the technique of TATME. And I said to him at the time, I said, um, Sunil, you know, uh, I'm in the latter part of my career, but I think it's important. And I think it's important that you have support. And I want to be that support for you. Um, so I'm we're, the two of us are going to learn this. We'll assign what, what roles we each play. And we're going to do these cases together. So we thought about this and we, we worked it out. And, and so that's so much different, you know, than, than how I approached laparoscopic colorectal surgery at the beginning of my career. We had a plan. So the two of us went to a course in Toronto. Uh, we then flew on a very st a stormy February day up to Sudbury to work with Antonio Casido, who was doing TATME up in Sudbury. Uh, and I know he had him, had him on the podcast uh, just recently. We, we were lucky to get into the airport. Porter was the only airline flying that day. WestJet and Air Canada both bailed because of the weather. And we wondered, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, but we landed on a very snowy day and we, we worked with uh, Antonio for a couple of a couple of days. And then in a timely fashion, we brought Antonio down to Kingston and we had a couple of cases booked over two consecutive days. And he was kind enough uh, to be there and to mentor us. And that was our start of TATME. Uh, I have to say, I found it a, a difficult operation and I, I was not convinced out of the gate um, that this was the best approach. Surgical planes uh, were, were very tough to consistently identify through the transanal approach. I know, you know, many surgeons have mastered that and, and, and do a great job with it, but it, it just, to me, seemed like a very hard thing. And I, I wondered, you know, would, would all colorectal trainees be able to master this technique? Uh, it, it's just seemed very, very challenging. Serendipity came along, though, in that we were lucky enough to uh, receive funding for a robotic platform. And the plan for the from the hospital was that they would be obviously be using this for prostatectomies, but also uh, gynae oncology was going to be the second player. Unfortunately for them, their division imploded at that time, and they had a lot of staff leave, and they just did not have the ability to take that on. And so it was offered to uh, Sunil and I uh, as colorectal surgeons, and we jumped on it. We saw this as an alternative approach to the difficult uh, pelvis, to the very low anastomosis. And I don't think either of us were, uh, you know, married to TATME. And so uh, we jumped on it. Uh, and our approach here was was driven a little bit by the industry, um, but but we we I think had learned a lot from how we took on TATME as as a as a team, and I think that's so impart, important. You know, in my early days, I, I kind of was on my own. I, I didn't have that support, uh, whereas we supported e each other in our journey into robotic uh, surgery to the point that we still uh, continue uh, to provide that support uh, in our center. The, the attendings, there will always be somebody assigned as the assistant attending when, when is one of the colorectal surgeons is doing a case. Uh, not to say that we're there for every second of it, but but we we are free uh, should we need to be. And, and I think that support is very important 
and, and it needs to continue, I think, beyond just a few, a few number of cases in the beginning. I think that support needs to be there till we've truly mastered this and, and uh, we, we're as good as we can be at it. So industry at that time, as you know, um, the, the, the nice thing about the robot is there's a great simulator uh, that you can uh, spend hours on to uh, master some of your techniques. And then, of course, uh, we went down to Atlanta and uh, we did uh, courses there. Uh, I've been twice actually to Atlanta um, that uh, in the lab that Intuitive has in, in Atlanta. And we had a mentor come uh, from the Chicago area for our first uh, couple of cases as well. So we, we were probably only doing TA TMEs for, for less than two years uh, before we switched over to robotic surgery. And, and I think now we're we're into our fourth year of robotic colorectal surgery with uh, each of us having done probably 250 cases each, I would say, at this stage. Yeah, so you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but how how do you think the transition to robotics was different in terms than than your transition to laparoscopy? So one thing was, it sounds like, you know, there was a different setup in terms of just making sure that you were both there. So, you know, you're both able to ascend that learning curve together and sort of double up on cases. So it sounds like it was very different in terms of like uh, some more deliberate courses, training, which I must say, and, and like, just to be clear, we have no financial relationship with Da Vinci or Intuitive. And, you know, like I have no s- conflict of interest in, in saying this, but they, they have a very kind of laid out program in terms of how they want to onboard people into robotics. Um, so I think that is potentially different, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, how do you think this was different in terms of rolling out laparoscopy to robotic than, you know, than transitioning to robotic surgery. Do you think part of it is that, you know, you kind of already had a bit of experience laparoscopically and there was that translation as well to robotic surgery? Or do you think there was, it was just, it's wholly different? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say that, you know, the biggest motivator for me in, a, in adopting new technique and, and changing my surgical approach is, has been patience. Uh, and patient outcomes. You know, in the era of open surgery and abdominal perineal resection, those patients would be in hospital up to two weeks. Half of them would have perineal wound complications. Many of them had wound infections. It, it, was, it was a long journey to get a patient um, through, through the surgery. And, and then suddenly to see, you know, a robotic low anterior resection go home on the second postoperative day um, if that doesn't motivate you, I, I don't know what will, you know, and and for those that have done robotic colorectal surgery, you, you see anatomy in such a different light that that you, you, you don't, t- to be honest and to be blunt, you don't need, uh, you know, a huge number of studies to tell you that this is at least equivalent, if not superior, in terms of your ability to see pelvic nerves and, uh, you know, to see the, the, the true mesorectal plane and, and to do such a nice dissection. Uh, it, it's, it's black and white, uh, to be blunt about that. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we've learned, we as, you know, as a group of surgeons um, have learned, for those who did experience the early days of adopting laparoscopic techniques, that it is important, you know, to to stay up to uh, par with the, the the technology and the innovation that is, you know, coming to market and and is available to us. And I, I think surgeons have to drive that. To be honest, in the early days with laparoscopic surgery, the surgeons did drive it. 
they drove lap coles and the patients then got on board and they drove it but i can tell you if you work in a hospital now that does not have a robotic platform to uh, you know to be to allow you to learn robotic colorectal surgery no one's going to drive it uh, the hospitals are afraid of the cost of the technology it's it's a bit daunting if you don't feel supported you know by your other colleagues to take on su- su- something as big as that um, so you, you you need to, I think surgeons need to give some consideration as to how they adopt these changes in their practice. And I, I think one of the one of the key elements is internal support within your center. You have to have a group uh, of other surgeons that are on board and are going to go through this journey sort of as as a team or as a group. In our case, it was only two of us. Um, but we, we had a very good symbiotic relationship, I think, with uh, uh, our approach to this. So it, it, to me, looking back on it, this, we, we, this was approached so much better uh, uh, and, and safer, and it was set up for success uh, out of the gate because of the, the difference of approach uh, that we took to, uh, to learn new technology. And initially, that was TATME. Uh, that, that was our goal, was to be able to uh, have less conversion rate for our, our deep rectal cancers, and uh, it really, it was only serendipity that, that the robotic platform came on board. Um, and very quickly, we, we were doing the largest volume of colorectal cases uh, in Canada for, for, uh, for, for rectal cancer cases. So I think Alberta was, uh, was doing, uh, up in Edmonton, they were doing quite a number as well on the SI platform. We, had, we started on the SI platform and then uh, were able to upgrade to the XI. Or sorry, to the X platform. Uh, we don't have the XI, so so it's black and white. Uh, I think approach in terms of uh, adopting this new technology compared to my early days when uh, when I slowly took on uh, laparoscopic colorectal surgery. So you know, I think one of the things that's pretty evident talking to people like you or you know Terry Pang, who's one of the mentors in in Vancouver, is that as a surgeon you have to be pretty adaptable and able to pick up new techniques. And in some sense, you have to be able to be a lifelong learner throughout your career because, you know, you've gone through such significant shifts in your career and your practice. Forget about even just techniques operative wise, like rectal cancer has changed so much since when you started practice. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's clear that you have to be able to pick up new techniques to be a lifelong learner, to be able to shift and mold your technique to the best available evidence. What advice do you have for people who are early on in their career, maybe mid-career, and especially late career, to be to develop that habit of being a lifelong learner and be okay with change and and to bring that on in a safe way? Yeah, that that's that's tough. I mean, you know, uh, surgeons are creatures of habit, right? Um, so a new trainee comes out, they're still mastering their skills. Most of us are risk adverse, and you know, and and for good reasons. So, so you you start your practice. Uh, you want to fall back on what you're comfortable with, uh, what you think you can do well, um, and so changing that is not on your agenda right out of the gate. Uh, you you need you want more experience. You want more cases under your belt, and you and you want to replicate uh, you, the steps of your surgical approach over and over and over again. That, I think that's very important. But but it's very easy then to get stuck in in, in that uh, comfort zone, 
uh, and to then not want to move outside of that comfort zone. There's a small number of surgeons, I would say, that that they don't get stuck. They, they, they're always driven by innovation. But there's a large body of surgeons, I think, that will get stuck in that comfort zone and, and not want to move outside of it. And, and it's it's driven, I think, by by aversion to risk and, and the challenge of, of doing something different, learning something different and going through yet another learning curve. And, and so that's the challenge is to, to overcome that. And I think what has to drive that is, is patient outcomes. Um, there's, there's no point in, in going about a different learning curve if at the end of the day, the patient outcome is, is, has not been changed. But it doesn't take long, you know, when you, when you take that journey into a new technique and a technique that's been shown to have changes in patient outcome. It doesn't take long, I, I think, because surgeons are driven by, by patient outcomes. And it doesn't take long to see, wow, that made a difference. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, no wound infection, uh, home in a few days that, that, that that's worth it. And, uh, but then, then you need to, I think, find an ability to make that change in your practice. That's going to allow you to feel comfortable and safe and, uh, and the burden of the stress is, is, is reduced. And that's why it's so important. I think to, to think about the change and setting yourself up for a success. Uh, unlike the days when when I started doing laparoscopic surgery, we weren't planning it out in in a very official way. It was it was it was you know it was a bit of hit and miss uh, approach. But but I, I think we've learned from that and uh, we we can do it a lot better. I, I think a key element of of bringing about change in your practice is you, you don't do it alone. You have to have you have to be surrounded by someone who wants the same thing and is going to be there to support you and you're going to be there to support them. I, I think that's that's a, a fundamental key to uh, to bringing about change. Um, that gone are the days where you have a single surgeon who's going to revolutionize the way we do a certain procedure. Now, you know, Antonio did that. Antonio in Sudbury did that. And, and kudos to him because I think, you know, his outcomes were very good. But, but I, I think... I think you're 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 setting yourself up for uh, for failure or a very long learning stressful uh, learning curve uh, with that approach. So, and and so it's it's tough then. You know how do you how do you bring in new technology into a center where you're you're not surrounded by those who who want the same thing? That, that's a that's the the tough thing to overcome. Uh, but if you can, <laughs> that's by far the better way to do it. You know, and talking to people who know you longer than I have. They they really comment on the fact that adopting robotic surgery kind of gave you some new life, some new enthusiasm, and I always find that striking because to me, you know, someone if you're if you're comfortable and you're not only just comfortable, you're good at doing cases a certain way, and then you you have to change what you're doing and and do it in a different way. That's a that's like very uncomfortable, and you know people always talk about putting put, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but for the vast majority of us, none of us. I mean. You know, if I go into the hospital from a certain entrance, I go the same way, exactly the same way. And then finally you go in with someone else through the same entrance and they go a different way to the office. And you're like, oh, wow, I've never gone this way before. Right. Like that's how forget about surgery. Like that's how human beings are, is that we like to do things exactly the same way that we've always done it. because It's just a force of habit. So like what how is that experience? Is that experience extended into the rest of your life or is this something uh, that's pretty unique to you? 
surgery that you're just driven to do things better for patients. Uh, yeah, I guess so like I, I'm curious about your overall uh, sense of stepping out of your comfort zone and how you deal with that. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. Uh, we're creatures of habit, um, and if something works for us, um, then the uh, you know the, the sentiment will why why should I do it differently? Why should I put that energy into it? I've always liked technology. And I think, you know, as a teenager and, and uh, I, I grew up at a time when we didn't have home computers, that type of thing. But but in the early 80s, uh, we started to see them. I was an early adopter. You know, I had one of the first uh, Mac computers. Uh, I tinkered. I played. I love technology. And uh, that's carried on, I think, throughout my life. But I'd, I'd have to say the main driving force for me is it's probably embedded a little bit in that in that desire to, uh, and attraction to technology but it really has been uh, and I can say this honestly it really has been patient outcomes um, I remember when we started uh, an ERAS program here in Kingston we were doing primarily open surgery at that time but it wasn't uncommon after an abdominal perineal resection you know to look up at the uh, anesthetist's uh, IV pole and to see five bags empty, five one liter bags of, of fluid empty uh, during your four hour case. And you're thinking, wow, that, you know, you'd, you'd move the patient over onto the stretcher and almost two people had to lift the Foley bag um, because it was so full. And there's no doubt that that impacted on recovery of bowel function. And I remember when we introduced that and suddenly we were paying a lot of attention to intraoperative fluids. I remember I did a BMI, a man with a BMI of 62, and he, he required an open abdominal perineal resection, and he went home on day three. And I thought, whoa, that's not by chance. Something's happened there. And, you know, I, I think that that was a real motivator for me then uh, to, you know, to pay attention to fluids and and to be stringent about our ERAS protocol. So the same thing has happened, I think, with laparoscopic surgery, you know, seeing the, the improved outcomes of patients, the, the fewer hernias, fewer wound infections, and then that's carried forward in robotic surgery. I must say, I, I didn't think I would see uh, such a magnitude of change for patient uh, outcomes with robotic surgery, but uh, both uh, Sunil and I uh, agree that that we have we have seen much better post-operative recoveries uh, after robotics uh, LARs than our, our laparoscopic ones. I, I don't, I can't really explain that, um, but but it, we, we, we've 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 observed that, and uh, and so that's a motivator, a huge motivator for me to continue to, you know, to uh, adopt change and in a safe and uh, controlled environment. And uh, I, I think this new generation of surgeons. Um, Many are exiting programs now with with probably minimal uh, robotic training. I suspect during their careers, uh, particularly those who do a, a fair bit of colorectal surgery and even other types of surgery, they're, they're going to have to adapt, I think, to robotic technology. Uh, it, it's not going away. And I think it, it's 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 our friend. It's, it's going to be uh, what allows surgeons to do a better job and hopefully with better outcomes. Uh, uh, so a little a little plug for robotic surgery. I know uh, many centers now are starting to entertain getting on board, but uh, I'm 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 sold. I'm I'm a believer. Hugh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you this morning. And so thank you again for joining us. Hugh, one of the questions we asked all of our guests is if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as 
a chief resident or perhaps an early attending, what would that advice be? Well, I, I think I've alluded to that. So, so I can tell you when I started my practice in 1992, I was giving no thought uh, to how I was going to adopt change. I was I was trying to get my my numbers up. I was trying to develop self confidence that uh, you know I could now do this independently. I could do it well. I could do it safe. And and so that's a bit consuming for the young surgeon that's starting out. But I think you need to uh, allow some room for that thought of okay, yeah, I'm I'm going to master this. Maybe I've mastered it already. But I, I'm not going to do it this way for the rest of my career. That's just not likely. Uh, there's going to be uh, innovations that allow me to do this better and allow the patients to benefit from outcome. So I think I, I would the advice I would have given myself if I could go back is is think about that early on. Think about how are you going to adapt to change? Will you be able to do it in the center in which you're working? Are, are those around you going to be able to support you? Are you going to be able to support them? Um, and, and if the answer to that is no, well, maybe maybe then you need to think about that and, and find out, well, how am I going to resolve that? Um, but, I, but I think we, we do need to give some thought early on as, to, uh, as, we, as our careers start to develop. Don't get too comfortable with, you know, with what you've been taught and, and the way you do it. You're not going to do that for the rest of your life. And if you do, then then really that you're you're losing out, and and your patients are losing out. So, so I I would just say early on thought about about how you're going to adopt, adopt change in your in your practice. I think would be would be good advice. And and I I you know you see you know in trainees they they they're they're trying to master their skill right. They're they're trying to learn that independence, and that that can be all consuming. And then twenty years can go by. And and you're still stuck there. Um, so I, I think this generation of surgeons, our new generation of surgeons, are are going to see continued growth in technology. And uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to have kind of gone through an era of open surgery, laparoscopic surgery, and now into robotic surgery. But I don't think it's stopping there. Uh, I think this generation of surgeons will probably see a greater magnitude of change and growth than even I, I, I experienced. Uh, so uh, I, I think maybe even our training programs need to spend a little bit more time on, on education about adopting change in your practice and, and how, how you go about doing that. I, I don't think we, we give that a lot of energy right now in our training programs. And uh, so... That's general advice I'd give myself, and certainly I'd give any any new graduate from the general surgery uh, residency is is think a little bit about how you're going to change what you do, and and be and do it in a safe and comfortable way. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian General Surgery. This episode was produced and edited by Kirsten Allen, one of our new team members on the Cold Steel team and a medical student at Queen's University. If you have comments or questions, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.